Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across the Carolinas, seeking out some of my very favorite sports legends. This is the very first episode of Season 3 of Sports Legends, and we've got a real treat for you. We're in Level Cross, North Carolina, population 3,694, and I'm thrilled to be sitting across from NASCAR legend Richard Petty. Known as the king of stock car racing, Richard Petty came from a racing family and then took the Petty name to new heights. He won 200 races at NASCAR's highest level, easily the most ever, as well as seven NASCAR Cup season titles. He was one of the five members of the NASCAR Hall of Fame's very first class in 2010. Richard Petty is now 86 years old and still active in the sport and in life. When Richard Petty walks through a NASCAR garage, even now, With his trademark hat, sunglasses, cowboy boots, and oversized belt buckle, everyone notices, because everyone still knows the king. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Associates, a pillar in the Queen City for over 100 years. Experience race day like never before with quality hearing tests and customizable hearing aid options. We're we're so pleased to be here and um, I'm just, I, this is the first time for me in this museum and in, in, in Level Cross. So I wonder if you could just sort of explain how close it was. I know you were born right down the street. Really, I was born in a house right beside the, the museum here. Uh, my brother and myself. And uh, that's where we grew up for a few years. Uh, then we moved over to the next road over where I live now in that area. And... Uh, the house burnt down over there. We moved back over here. Uh, and then uh, uh, my dad built a little house, moved back over there for a while. And when my grandmother and granddaddy died, my daddy bought the home place where his uh, wife, my mother, grew up. So uh, we came back here. And when we started, he started racing in 1949. And uh, we just took a little reaper shed behind the, the house here and uh, – that become uh, Petty's Garage. And uh, so that's where all the race cars came out of uh, in the early years. Wow. Uh, and all the so everything you're talking about is really within like a square mile, it sounds well, like, or less than that. <laughs> yeah, just a circle all the way around. <laughs> yeah, we still still own the houses brought, brought up in and still own here at the original Petty Enterprise, which is uh, now Petty's Garage. Uh, we do a lot of restoring old race cars, restoring all kinds of cars, whether mm. T-models or whatever. Then we work on a lot of new cars here. People want more horsepower. They want bigger tires, bigger brakes, better suspension. And, and if they want spatial paint jobs, we got that. So we're still in business here. What has kept you in Level Cross? You could have lived anywhere anywhere in the world. You know, I never thought about going anywhere else. Like I said, I was born here, raised here, and this is home. And, uh, you know, all of our racing and stuff came out of this shop here. And uh, so there was no really need to go anywhere else because when uh, we started racing and stuff, my dad, you know, and I worked on the race car, me and my brother and uh, Dale Inman. And then when we got older, then I started driving. And uh, so it was a 24-hour job. 
You didn't have time to go anywhere else. You had to live next door. <laughs> no commute. Yes, and, you didn't uh, want so that. So you didn't have time to commute. But even after that, you know, I just never thought about going anywhere else because this is home. This is where uh, we grew up, and uh, this is where I want to be when my toes turn up. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that you couldn't be anywhere else, right? This place is so associated with you. Tell me about your dad. He was a famous racer. Was that what inspired you to do it, or well, was it really, some other reason? Really, uh, my dad started in 1949. I ran the first uh, race that NASCAR had as far as new cars. I think they started in 48, but they run modifieds instead. In 49, uh, Bill France decided to start running new cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, you got to figure this was right after World War II, and there wasn't that, wasn't that many new cars around. So it was really something something different and uh, so they didn't start building cars till 1946 when the war was over and uh, but anyhow my dad read in the paper that uh, they was having a race at Charlotte and I think he's paying $1,500 to win a thing and he said man that, that looks like a good deal so he borrows a car from some guys and uh, decides to go racing and very first race uh, he turns the car over and about halfway through the race, something breaks. So we took a ride home with my with my uncle. And after that, did they had uh, I don't know seven, eight more races that year. And my dad looked at it and he said, "Look, you know, this is something that I can do." And uh, they pay pretty good. So he went out and bought a '49 Plymouth for nine hundred ninety dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so he figured if he could win a race, he could pay for pay the race for car. It. Yeah, right. And so basically. Uh, that's where it all started. What sort of parent was he? Well, he was busy parent. Yeah. Uh, you know, him and my mother both were pretty stern people. Mm -hmm. They grew up during the Depression. Things was tough on them, so they didn't make it tough on us. They just didn't give us any breaks. But, <laughs> uh, you know, we were we were required, required to, you know, work around the house, work in the yard, uh, work in the field if they uh, had you know, some something in the field. Would, he grew tomatoes one year. You know, he, he grew some pigs one year. I mean, he was just doing anything he could do to make a living. Then racing come along, and he said, this is what we're going to do. But from that standpoint, uh, he was very stern on that race car. He knew that you had to finish the race uh, in order to win it or to win, win any money. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, for the first few years, they called him, Mr. Consistency, because he he wound up winning, uh, not winning when he won a bunch of races, but uh, finishing, you know, like 90% of the races because he'd done preventive maintenance. And I think he was probably the first one that really looked at, hey, if we got trouble, let's fix it before we get to it. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah. you know, once we broke something, we never broke that piece again. Uh -huh. And you uh -huh. got to figure these cars were strictly, strictly stock, stock wheels, you know, stock brakes, stock motors. So, you know, as NASCAR grew, they started modifying things because things break. So they'd say, okay, you can do this to the car. Mm -hmm. And over a period of years, uh, they turned into what they are today. <laughs> um, there's a famous story. Uh, I wonder if it's true or if you could tell it to me about, I guess it was your first win and the <laughs> protest and such. Can you go through that one with yeah, me? We was running a 150-mile race at Lakewood in Atlanta, Georgia. It was a um, mile dirt. And uh, we ran the race, and 
I was running a convertible, 57 Oldsmobile, and uh, he had a 59. I don't know where it was Oldsmobile, I don't know what it was. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, and uh, so when the race was over, they flagged me the winner. And so, you know, we stopped and jumped up and down. First time I'd, I'd ever thought about winning a race. Really? Because yeah. I just started. How old in, were you? Like 21, 22, 20, something like that? I have been 22 years old. Yeah, now. yeah. But I just started uh, the when I turned 21 in July of 58. Mm-hmm. And we were running convertibles, and my dad ran the hard top so that we didn't have to run in the same same race for the uh, same money. Gotcha. They had a race there, and they had convertibles and hard tops. And uh, so, you know, we was jumping up and down, thought we'd won the race. And then they come and said somebody protested, looked around there, stood my dad. <laughs> Somehow, know they had put me in an extra lap or took him, left him out of the lap. And at that time, uh, being they, there wasn't a lot of new cars around, the uh, organization had said, okay, if you've got a a, a new model car, like a 59 car, you get an extra $500. So uh, the Petties went home with $500 extra. That's the way he explained it to me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was all about the money. It, it was wasn't all about, about the, the win. Uh, that yeah. was one thing about Daddy. He ran for the money. Glory, he, he couldn't... Uh, he couldn't eat that. I mean, I would have been pretty PO'd at my dad at 22 if I just got my first win. Second was the best I'd ever run. So okay. We was tickled to death with that. So you were good. Yeah. yeah, we was good. Did you all ride home in the same car and go yeah. home with all the money? Did you all go together and come back in oh, the yeah. same car oh, yeah. to Lakewood and everywhere, yeah, I guess, like this? Yeah. Had the cars on the ground, but towed them behind a pickup truck or yeah. a car. Uh-huh. So. They, you know, everybody had the same thing, which was nothing. Yeah. But uh, yeah. everybody that participated at that time uh, laid the groundwork for what it is today. You have a very distinctive look. I mean, people know <laughs> Richard Petty in a second. And so where did the, um, this you know, the, the cowboy hats and the, the boots, uh, um, sunglasses, <laughs> the belt. I mean, where did all this? This yeah. did, did, was this on purpose? How did you manage no, to do it, this? It just, it just really happened. Uh, I probably from time to time, I've always wore sunglasses. Mm-hmm. My eyes are pretty uh, sensitive to light, so yeah, I wore some kind of sunglasses most of the time. And I think 79. Uh, Kyle Petty, my son, uh, had a, a business called Kyle Petty Boot Barn. Sold boots, some western and uh, western area. And uh, the Charlie One Horse guy came by one day, talked to him, and wanted to start selling uh, selling hats because he wasn't selling hats. Mm. And uh, so he kind of said, "Well, I don't know." He said, "Why don't I just give you one of these hats, and you can wear it or give it to your dad and let him wear it." Well, first time I seen it, I fell in love with them. Really? And yeah. so I started wearing the hat, and then we got with Charlie One Horse and cut a deal. Uh, I wear the hats for a while, and then I autograph them, and uh, we give them, give them away to uh, people that auction them off for charity. Mm-hmm. So it works pretty good. Charlie One Horse gets their advertisement. Uh, we get uh, to be feeling better because we've helped somebody somewhere yeah. down the line. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've always wore boots. If you look back, 
in my early days and stuff. I didn't wear cowboy boots, but I wore boots. Mm-hmm. And uh, then once Kyle got the boot more, naturally I got to wearing cowboy boots. So, you know, all that stuff just, it didn't come along as me sitting down and said, this is what I'm, I want to portray. Yeah. It just all come on a little at a time. And then after a while, it got to be Richard Petty. Today they would call that creating a brand, and there'd be a lot of marketing people trying to think it up. Right. You just came for you, like you know, a little there's, bit. There's yeah. very few people in sports that's got their own brand. Very I mean, you know what yeah. I mean? They're, they're there, they do their thing, but as far as just seeing a silhouette of them, something like that, uh, you don't recognize them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we didn't set out to do this, it just happened. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, over the years, it, it's been a been a plus plus for us. Yeah, I mean yourself, Michael Jordan silhouette when he's dunking right, the ball. There's right. a few others I yeah. can think of, but not many. Very few. Very few. Um, another thing you have that's very distinctive is your autograph, and you're famous <laughs> for having signed so many. And also, you have a very beautiful autograph uh, that is readable. Now, where did that come from? <laughs> well, when uh, when I got out of high school, I never thought about going to a four year college. But uh, my dad said, you know, he'd, he'd gone when he was growing up. Uh, he went to King's Business College and learned uh, bookkeeping, you know, how to write and stuff like that. So when I went, to, uh, took a six-month course uh, at King's Business College, and uh, so I took three months off one winter and went up there. And uh, so you do your bookkeeping, you learn, you know, how to handle money, how to put it down. But first thing they do is say, okay, you got to learn to write so that the next guy can read what you what you put down in the book. So I passed that course, and then they had penmanship. And I said, man, I like that stuff. <laughs> so I got to be doing all the fancy stuff and in doing that. Then uh, I learned not to write with my hand, but to write with my arm. So that's the reason all the circles and stuff. This was a modification of what I really learned. <laughs> and that, where was that? King's Business King's College? King's Business College was in Greensboro. Okay. I went up there for three three months, one year in the wintertime, and then took took off, went racing, and then uh, went back the next three months and finished the course. Uh, let's talk about some of your wins. Uh, 200 of them. We won't go through them all, but... Um, this will air shortly before the Daytona 500. First of all, before we get to the 79 Daytona 500, maybe the most famous race in NASCAR history, just tell me in general what's special about Daytona. Well, really, uh, until 1959, we had Darlington. Mm. And Darlington was our Super Bowl because mm. it was a mile and a quarter or something like that in a big asphalt track. So they had a big 500-mile race. So that was the crown and jewelry of that year. Interesting. And uh, then Daytona come along, and it took them three or four years to really be the place for uh, our biggest race. Darlington was always second in, mm-hmm. but uh, it took a while for that. And so we went to Daytona, and uh, there's a big two-and-a-half-mile track, bank 32 degrees, 33-something, you know, you could run wide open all the way around the racetrack. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. Yeah. And so we went down there in 59, and my dad was lucky enough to win the first race. And so, you know, after that, then we always pointed toward Daytona because it was the first 
big race that we had. Daytona was really the opening part of uh, NASCAR, of the Cup Series. You know, there hadn't been any racing, yeah, yeah. you know, anywhere around. Everyone's so yeah, ready First for thing it. you know, Daytona got to be the place to be in February from all over the world. People came from England, Japan, you know, Australia, you know, because it was the happening. And uh, so it got to be a very prestigious deal. And if you win Daytona, uh, you're a winner all year long. Yeah. In other words, they introduce you as the, the Daytona 500 champion, you know. So uh, it's, it's been a big, big deal in, in my career by being lucky enough to win seven of them. And uh, so that always started the year off good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about two very special races in Daytona, the one you won in front of President Reagan. But before that, the 1979 Daytona 500, which I've only watched on TV, but it, it, it looked remarkable. The, some people who are listening to this won't be familiar with the story, but tell us your story of, of the 79 well, Daytona. Come down to the very last lap, and uh, Kale and Donnie uh, were the fastest cars. Myself, Darrell Waltrip, and uh, A.J. Foyt was racing for third. Mm -hmm. I mean, we was having a heck of a race. The white flag is out. One lap to go. Two of the greatest fiddling here, fidgeting with first place. Passing some of the strikers in the last lap. Trying to take it home. It's all come down to this. Out of turn two, Donnie Allison in first. And going up the backstretch on the last lap, Donnie and Kill got together. And they crashed. Well, just as we come off of number two, they crashed going in three. Where will Kale make his move? He comes to the inside. Donnie Allison throws the block. Kale hits him. He slides. Donnie Allison slides. They hit again. They climb in the turn. They're hitting the wall. They're head on the wall. Two cars are out. In the backstretch are the leaders. Who is going to win it? Between A.J. Boyd and Richard Petty. Down the back straightaway come the leaders now. We Just as we came off number two, blinker light come on. That, and then caution. And at that time, you race back to the flag. Mm. And so, you know, we just sat there and we looked forward and didn't see nothing, looked in the mirror, didn't, didn't see no wreck until we got to going in the third corner. And all of a sudden, there's number one and two car laying in, in the infield. And said, <laughs> wow, instead of running for third, we're racing for first. Coming down, Richard Petty is now. wound up beating Darrell by a car length, I think. And A.J. was right behind that. So instead of being third, fourth, and fifth, we was first, second, and third. So that was a, a get, they give us that one, you know. Pit road, it has gone crazy. The Petty crew is out there jumping up and down. Petty has won it. Richard Petty has won his sixth Daytona 500, and the crowd here are going absolutely and that was also the race where people don't remember. There, so it was snowing on the East Coast. Oh, so yeah. a lot of people were watching the telecast that had never seen it before. Well, you got to figure yeah. at that time, uh, they just had ABC, NBC, and CBS. They didn't have all the satellite deals. Right. So anybody that was at home, it was snowing, so they couldn't go anywhere. So they was watching TV. And I guess the most exciting thing on TV was the race. 
So you had millions of people that had never seen a race. So it wound up being the perfect storm for TV because this was the first time CBS or any any TV had had it live from flag to flag. So it was perfect for them. The race was perfect because there was excitement at the end of the Right, the, yeah. Tell not, them what happened. Kelly Yarbrough and Donnie Allison. Race. What <laughs> happened after had that? a wrestling match when the race was over. <laughs> right. so a fight. And there's a fight between Kelly Yarbrough and Donnie Allison. The Teppers overflowing. They're angry. They know they have lost. And what a bitter defeat. They're leading them away. Very upset. Very upset. You got to see everything that the Cup Series produced. In other words, it was an interesting race. That came down to the very last lap. And then you got to see the emotions of what these guys go through. So you got to see our whole soul in, in one one day. Yeah, yeah, really in about 15 minutes, right? The last, <laughs> the last little bit, amazing. So now let's go to your 200th and final win, 1984. Yeah. Again, Daytona, not the Daytona 500 this time. It was on a, a special day in American's history, though, right? July 4th. July the 4th. And tell us that story. Well, July the 4th, uh, 1974, 84. Uh, the President of the United States was on his way. And to heighten the drama, Air Force One is flying a special guest into town as the crowd and drivers at Daytona await the radio command from the nation's most visible racing fan. All right, gentlemen. Start your engines. So he was flying, and uh, he said, gentlemen, start your engines. So, you know, we weren't paying no attention to press. That was busy racing. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, about two-thirds of the way of the race, I guess, or halfway, he landed, but we weren't paying any attention. We was busy racing. Each That's time. right. He said it on the radio or something, right? right? Yeah, okay. I think I, he said yes. something about Right, right, right. He wasn't and, physically there. And Kale yeah. uh, and myself wound up. I guess we was probably a lap ahead of everybody else. And yeah, we was only two cars racing, and uh, it was going to come down to the very last lap. It is Richard Petty in car 43, Cale Yarbrough in car 28. Now as they try to position themselves for the last lap first to the finish, when they cross the yellow line on the front straight here, there will be three laps remaining in the race. They're now on lap 150, and a car is spun out. Doug Heverin's car is spun out in turn one. And with a couple laps to go, Somebody spun out in the number one corner. And we, me and Kelly, had just passed the start-finish line, and they threw the caution flag. So both of us realized this is our last lap. So, you know, we raced. Kelly passed me going up the back stretch, and we had we'd been loafing wrong. I've been trying to figure out, you know, I know he's going to pass me, but, you know, what can I do about it? Okay, and... So over a period of maybe eight or ten laps, I'd started slowing the pace down a little bit. Just a little bit. Enough that he really didn't notice it. Nobody else noticed it. So it wasn't really running wide open. So once I seen the, the caution flag come out, then I started running wide open. Well, Kale then started running wide open and because he'd been back there feathering it out. And he called me... Didn't catch me till the end of the backstretch, which if he had caught me in the middle of the backstretch, I wouldn't have been able to overcome it. He caught me just as he went in the corner, and he was probably running maybe 10 mile an hour faster 
than what he'd been in the last four or five laps. And when he did, the car went a little bit high because he, he headed for the groove, but the sensation of the car carried him out. I was able then to cut down and get beside it. And so we come down the front stretch side by side, and the advantage I had, I was on the inside. And as we turned to go into the dog leg in, at the start finish line, we were side by side. But when I went in, I had to travel a little bit less distance than he did, and it was like three foot. Here they are, Sam. They will come across the yellow line just about together, but Petty had the lead. By the nose of the car, Richard Petty was just in front of Cale Yarbrough as they came across the line. It was still two laps to go. And so, you know, I said, "Now we just won this race because they won't throw the green flag again. Well, come back around, and I stay on the racetrack. Kale's thinking it was the last lap. He goes down pit road, and, uh, you know, then they holler at him on the radio. He pulls back out on the racetrack, but by then, uh, Harry Gant, who had been running third, got ahead of it. So that race was that close within three foot of the winner, but uh, Harry Gant ran second. He wasn't even in the picture, and <laughs> poor Kale ran third. What was it like afterwards with President Reagan? Well, it was pretty exciting. Uh, you know, I'd met with, with the president before he became president. Mm. And then I'd been up there to uh, to do some stuff with him for a couple of times. And now here in what for today has become the winner's circle, I am with the guest of honor, President Ronald Reagan, and the honored man of the day who has won his 200th Grand National Stock Car Race, Richard Petty. Mr. President, it's great to have you here. A member of your staff intimated to me yesterday that Although you are interested in the fortunes of all race drivers, you might be excited to see this occasion, Richard Petty winning his 200th. It's quite a day, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. I understand that no one in the whole history of racing has ever done that or ever uh, won 200 races. You've been around this sport so long that you may not get terribly excited at uh, the prospect of winning a race, but was there a little extra thrill in winning knowing that the number one fan was here today? Well, definitely. Uh, you know, 200 is, is very, very important, but uh, under the circumstances, uh, with all the presidents that's ever been in the United States, this is the first one that's ever showed up at a racetrack. So everybody's got to go from that, from racing standpoint. And I wanted to be the one that was able to, to welcome him to Grand National Racing. I've been out campaigning for him because this was a campaign here. And, uh, you know, we went up in the, uh, the box and they had the TVs and all that. And uh, so talked to him just a little bit there. Then when the race, when everything was over, they had uh, blocked out the pit area, the garage area, and all the drivers and their crews and families and the crews were able to sit down and eat Kentucky Fried Chicken with the President of the United States. Wow. And uh, so, you know, it worked out really, really good because he was running for president and I was running trying to win two in a race <laughs> and it all came together. And the big deal was when the race was over, uh, we put him on the sports page. He put us on the front page. Yeah. So it couldn't couldn't have been a, a better a better opportunity to win a 200 race. I didn't win anything after that. But you know what else could you ask for? Exactly. And I like you used a newspaper analogy there too. The sports <laughs> page and the front page. I, I love that. Um, we talked about some of your your biggest wins and biggest joys in racing. What to you were some of your toughest moments or or biggest regrets in racing? You know, you know, I look back on all my racing, uh, look back on life, period. And uh, I, 
I've said this before. I wouldn't change anything if I changed anything. Growing up in my racing career, in my personal life, it would change other people. Okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't think about it. You think, you're just thinking about yourself. Mm-hmm. But if uh, if I wasn't here, you wouldn't be here. Okay? Right, right, you know right. The I mean? butterfly right. effect. It's, ripple effect. It's a ripple effect. Right. Okay. So you affect people directly and so indirectly. Because if I change your life a little bit, you change somebody else's. So I guess the, the best thing is that I, I wouldn't change nothing. Mm-hmm. I, I take the good and the bad, and there's been a lot of bad I've done. Uh, hopefully there's been some good I've done, and it kind of evens itself out. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the death of Adam probably hit you very hard, yeah, that, though. Yeah. When, when we had Adam come along, I, my dad came along, uh, I came along, that's the reason we celebrated the 75th racing year of the Petties, which started with my father. I I came along, Kyle came along, Adam came along, and we here at Petty Enterprises was looking for Adam to carry on the Petty name and Petty Enterprises. He was going to be our front man because it then went through three others, Mm -hmm. and so it was up to him. And... uh, then we lost him. Uh, he just turned 19, and uh, we lost him. And uh, the good Lord, I guess, didn't see our legacy carrying on any further than that. Hello, everyone. I'm John Kernan. Welcome to RPM tonight. We start tonight's show with some very sad news. 19-year-old Adam Petty died Friday from injuries suffered in a single car crash at the New Hampshire International Speedway. Even though I've got a grandson, that's that's running his name, not Petty, but he's still high Petty, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, before that, uh, Adam had worked with uh, Sprint, uh, telephone people, and they had a deal set up that Adam would go to these hospitals and children's wards, talk to them and stuff, and a lot of times he'd get on the Internet and talk to, to people in other uh, hospitals and stuff. So one day he was in Daytona, and uh, Kyle and Adam rode over to a place called Boggy Creek, uh, which was a hole-in-the-wall gang camp. And Adam looked around and said, you know, we ain't got nothing like this in North Carolina. Why can't we have something like this? So he comes back. <laughs> he goes out and starts looking for land, <laughs> starts looking around for different, different things. And, and so the idea came from him. Really? Then once we lost him, then we get together and said, you know, what can we do in his memory? So we said, okay, we'll talk, talk about doing a camp. And uh, so we called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, um, Paul Newman's crowd, and they came down and talked to us about it. And we said, you know, we want to do this, April or May or sometime. And uh, said, we'll have a meeting in November and we'll bring it up to the board. And, see if they're interested in it. I sat there and told them, I said, we're going to build this camp with or without you. <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, But we want to you know, do that. But in, in the meantime, or over past years, Kyle and Paul got to knew each other because both of them run some sporty car races mm-hmm. together. So Paul knew Kyle. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. So the guy that came uh, 
that was running the operation. He called Paul and said, you know, I met with the pities and all that. The next day, Paul called Kyle and said, do it. No No board meeting. He didn't go to the board. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And so we started it, and uh, the community got behind it. Uh, NASCAR got behind it. Uh, The drivers got behind it. Fans got behind it, sponsors. So, you know, we just – we had about 600 acres of land over there. So we took a piece in the back part of the deal and gave them, I don't know, 70, 80 acres. Since then, I think we gave them probably – a few more acres, 110 acres or something, that we donated to the camp. So we had a place to start it. And so we had a friend in uh, Richmond, Hugh Hawthorne. He was in the construction business. So we called him and said, look, this is what we want to do. So he comes down, looks around, talks about it, and uh, he's retired. His son's running his business. So he gets three or four of his buddies that's retired. Here they come. Mm-hmm. They all come down here, and then he, he talks to uh, a John Deere dealership in Richmond, and they uh, volunteer to give us the equipment. So, man, first thing you know, we start they start digging and blowing up, and it just started with a hope and a promise, and then when everybody got behind it, then it worked out. And uh, this year we're celebrating our 20th year. Uh, and uh, so... You know, everything worked out, all the volunteers, all the people that's give money, you know. And uh, so it's wound up that we've looked after 40 or 50,000 kids that wouldn't normally get to go to a camp. And Victory Junction's the name of the place. On the track, these men are fierce competitors. But today, they are helping build the Victory Junction Gang Camp for children with life-threatening illnesses. Please join these and other dedicated drivers in support of this empowering camp being built in honor of Adam Petty. You got kids that can't go to YMCA camp or you know church camp. We take care of. We got a hospital there, and you know the kids come in, they check in, they bring all the uh, medicines and stuff with them. And uh, you know the hardest thing we we do is, is uh, it's a couple of hard things is convince the parents that will take care of their kids mm-hmm. because some of them have never been out of the hospital or out of sight of their parents. And then, you know, once we convince them and we get like 120, 25 kids at a time, and then the hardest part we have is getting rid of the kids once they get there <laughs> because it's a, good, it's a Disney stay. world. Yeah, Fantasy world, world. yeah. Uh-huh. And then yeah. the way we got it figured out or where they got it work, each kid has one per- person to look after them. In other words, they're never alone. Oh, We've got cabins. The people that look after them is on one side, the kids are on the other. Mm-hmm. So the kids are never by themselves. And if they need to take a shot at 3 o'clock and they're in the swimming pool, they don't go to the hospital. The nurse comes, takes care of them. So they don't really know there's a hospital there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, what's really good about it, we, we get feedback from the parents and stuff. The kids go home and they've done things they've never done. And then they want to do more. So it just opens up a whole new world to kids that have been segregated in a, in a certain area. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's done so much good, and it helps the parents uh, because they're more open to letting their kids do stuff. So, again, you know, one person makes a lot of other people make it work. 
What a legacy for Adam and for the Petty family. And that Victory Junction, if you haven't ever seen it on the website or something, check it out. It's a beautiful, I've donated there before and, and you should too, really. It's, it's, it's a place where it's just helped thousands and thousands of people. Um, speaking of legacies then, and you mentioned laughingly a minute ago when your toes turn up, but as you are now 86, look much younger, but, um, do you think about your own personal legacy and, and what do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, you know, I, I hope the pity of legacy is Victory Junction. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But as far as my personal legacy, I just look at it. If people remember you, that's enough. <laughs> Some people are going to remember me one way as maybe not a good person. Other people are going to remember me as a fair person. Some people are going to think I was great, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the big deal is if you're remembered, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, then that's all you can ask for. Just being remembered at all, you're saying, yeah. <laughs> right. What were some of the racers, uh, Richard, that you really enjoyed racing against and with? Well, you know, all the guys I grew up with, uh, you know, Pearson, Allison, uh, Yarborough, you know, Bakers, you know, we grew up as a family unit. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure, we didn't have sponsors, so we were able to, be buddies off the track Mm -hmm. and you know now you got sponsors these these boys that drive the cars are so busy taking care of business is another thing we didn't have no business we just race we just racers and so uh, all that stuff has changed and 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 everybody's environment's changed for 10 years ago or 20 or 40 years ago so we're no different Mm -hmm. than anybody else do you do you like racing today? And then what are the big changes from when you were when you <laughs> yeah, were driving? Race, racing today is so te- technical. Got all the computers. Mm. And first thing you know, we we got more engineers looking at computers than we got people working on a race car. Mm. And so that just went right past me because we were just used to making notes and saying, "Okay, this is what we done last time. What can we do to get better?" All that stuff now comes through the computer. They try to NASCAR gives us a rule, and then these guys sit there and try to sharpen that rule. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. maybe don't go past cheating, but they go as far as they can within that rule. And then uh, some of them cheat a little bit too. But, <laughs> well, that's uh, always been the case, though, hasn't it? Isn't that part of it? Yeah. But, uh, the, the cheating is has really is what changed racing. People cheat, make the racing better, and then NASCAR say. That ain't too bad. Let's do that. Mm. So a lot of the rules and stuff are made just because people were pushing the rules that was already there. Mm-hmm. I, how did you get the number 43? My, the 43 came after 42. My, my dad's number was 42, and I think he, I think he took that off a license plate or something. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, he 42. I came along. I was 43. Kyle came along. He took 44. Adam's number was 45. And my grandson... Uh, now has got number 46. So my brother dr- raced uh, with number 41, and Pete Hamilton won races for us in, in uh, the number 40. So we've always just stuck in that. In that I, did not, I did not realize that. Huh. Um, you seem like you're in great health now. How are, how are you doing? As far as I know. Yeah. Somebody don't tell me I'm feeling bad, I'm feeling okay. <laughs> What's your average week like these days? What what do you keep yourself busy doing? Busy answering yeah. questions with you. <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, we could still go to the races. Yeah. Uh, 
still keep up with what's going on. And it, it's, it's never, I don't have a, a consistent day. Every day that I get up is a different day. And that, I think that's what gets me up. I've got no really routine uh, about when you go to bed, when you get up, when you eat. You just go ahead and do it. And uh, whatever's in front of you, you know, y'all were supposed to be here at 1 o'clock. He's here 10 or 15 minutes early. We just get started early. Mm. So I don't, I don't, I go by schedule, somebody else's schedule, not mine. Uh, uh. You dabbled in politics for a while. How did you like that? Well, I was county commissioner for 16 years here in yeah. Randolph County. And uh, my wife was on the school board for 16 years. And I got a daughter that's on, been on the school board, I don't know, six, eight years. Really? She's still oh, on the so school it's board. Oh, so it's in you the know. family, too. And okay. One time they taught me to end running for uh, attorney general. I'm glad I lost. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was Secretary of State. Was it Attorney General? Yeah, okay. Some, yeah. some kind of. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That, that's how much, yeah. much interested I was. Did you campaign a lot or was it like yeah, we campaigned. you did the campaigning we campaigned. and all we went that? To all, yeah. hundred, went to all 100 counties. Really? We oh, to, wow. Yeah. One little county over there somewhere didn't even have a service station in it. <laughs> what nobody talked to. <laughs> You're just standing there <laughs> looking for motors. Yeah, right. Uh, just two more things. One is uh, if you were to construct a Mount Rushmore on Na- of NASCAR people, but no petties are in it, what four people would you put on that na- on on Mount Rushmore for you? Well, you'd have to put the Francis because they started all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you'd have to put from the driver's standpoint. That, that would be tough. You'd have to put a David Pearson. But then, you you know, you look at Bobby Alice. Uh, and and I'm, I'm talking about the guys that done the hard work for the guys that's doing now. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the Jimmy Johnsons and, you know, the guys, Dale Earnhardt, the guys that came along later. And the last thing I'll ask you is just you've, you've always been known as someone who's been very accessible to fans. Um, from the autographs to other things, I've seen you in action, and people are, I mean, they're, they're not even sure you're a real person. Sometimes I think they come up and they're, you know, like an icon, but they're like, oh, he is, oh, and he was so nice. Um, a lot of your fans are probably going to listen to this. So what, what's, why have you done that for all these years? Why have fans been important to you? And sort of what message do you want to leave people? When I first went to a race, Columbia in 1958, I think somebody asked for an autograph. That's great. Next race, maybe two or three people. Then the first thing you know, you said, we had no sponsors. The only money we got came from the guy that was running the show, the promoter. But the promoter didn't have any money if it wasn't for the fans. So I said, okay, the fans pay the promoter, and then the promoter pays that. So the money comes from the fans, not the promoter. So... Every time I sign an autograph, I said, thank you for being a fan. You don't have to be a Richard Petty fan. You're a fan because you bought a ticket, and I'm going to take a penny or two home with me to feed my kids. <laughs> uh-huh. So basically, that's that's the way it started. And so and, and still that way, because if I've got a sponsor, then they have to buy that product for them to sponsor me mm-hmm. or my race car. So it's still the same thing. He just got a different layer. 
Hmm. So many people don't don't uh, realize <laughs> that, but you did so early. Well, Richard Petty, this has been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for coming back. Thanks to Charlotte Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Associates for sponsoring this episode. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally, Jeff Siner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and the executive editor is Raina Cash. Remember, you'll find much more about this interview and about all of our guests, including Steph Curry, Roy Williams, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and Don Staley, in our Sports Legends book. Order your copy now at sportslegendsbook.com. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription. And connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.